Hello, and welcome to the Great Birth Rebellion podcast, where we grapple with current research to help you get the best out of your pregnancy, birth, and postpartum journey, while still challenging the dominant birth culture. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Jackson at Melanie the Midwife, and I'm joined weekly by my co-host, B from Core and Flora Store, and this is the Great Birth Rebellion. Welcome to this week's episode of the Great Birth Rebellion. And if you're joining us now, you've stepped into part two of a two-part series. Uh, so last week, we started the series on small babies, big babies. Last week, we talked about how to work out the size of your baby during pregnancy. Spoiler alert, there's no accurate way of doing that. And you've got to listen to that episode, episode 29 before you listen to episode 30, because that gives you a buttload of information that we're not going to re-go over. A w- an accurate womb fill full of information, accurate not buttload. Womb fill. A womb fill. But that's a really hard word to say. And for everyone that has been hanging out for the last six days, we understand that it was a really long six days. Thank you for waiting patiently. Not Wait. that you had a choice. <laughs> but we love you. Thank you for being here and coming back. This is where the bosses of this podcast are. We decide when we do the episode on big babies. I'm sorry. I love love that you said where because really you're the boss of this podcast. (laughs) Yes, I know I'm the boss of the podcast, but I just need to express that, you know, you do have a level of autonomy and authority in this space, B, but I might be the queen bee maybe in my own little world and mind. I totally gave you that um, authority right at the start when you asked me to come on the podcast, so it's yours. All right, they've waited long enough. I feel like we need to dive into it. Let's do this. So we're going to dive straight into the big babies chat today because we've already spoken about the other stuff. So listen to the previous episode if you need any information about ultrasound accuracy or determining size of babies. If you just want to dive straight into big babies, sure, you can join this, but I feel like you get more out of it if you listen to them together. Anyway, that's my disclaimer. All right, so abnormal reasons. So we already worked out normal reasons why your baby might be big is your ethnicity and your genetics. It's just supposed to be that way and your body can do it and you're well and healthy and don't worry about it because that's the size that your body's going to grow your baby because it knows it can get it out because that's what you were made for. So that's the main reason why you'll have a big baby is because it was supposed to be big. There are abnormal reasons for why your baby might be big. And the issue is not that it's big. It's that it's bigger than it's supposed to be for your body. Because typically what we feel as midwives is that you will grow the size baby that you can get out because there's a communication between your baby and your body and they each know what size they are and what size they need to be in order to make this relationship of baby coming out of your body work so they also have beautiful mechanisms hmm. that they that are instinctual that you know and this is where we people really need to understand that birth is a physiological event that means your body and baby are in deep communication and have been designed to do something and there is a lot that has gone into that for that to work uh we're not just some Kmart toy that breaks easily birth works if it didn't we wouldn't be overpopulated women's bodies are incredible and babies are so intelligent and so resilient 
and we are so capable as a race. Yeah, well, I think we just need to remember that most of the time it all works and that our body knows which size baby it needs to grow in order for it to come out safely. But that there are sometimes states of pathology that will change how our body functions. And so then it can mess with that physiology. So the the main reason why people worry uh, for big babies is the concern about gestational diabetes. And, you know, obviously gestational diabetes diagnosis is fraught with controversy and you can listen to our gestational diabetes screening episode to get an understanding of that. But if you have true diabetes, like definitely gestational diabetic, and it's uncontrolled or undiagnosed, then your baby is at risk of growing bigger than it should have and they grow disproportionately larger shoulders. It's not like they get big everywhere. There's a typical sort of weight pattern that uh, gestational diabetic babies have that uh, makes their shoulders bigger than they should be. And so this is only for true, uncontrolled or undiagnosed diabetes. For women who are listening, who've been diagnosed with gestational diabetes, you're doing your sugars every day. You're checking in with whoever's checking up on you and all your blood sugars have been normal, you have what's called controlled diabetes and you don't have a risk of an abnormally large baby because your risk factor of gestational diabetes has been controlled. And so for all intents and purposes, you're not at risk of a big baby. So if you're being encouraged to be induced because you have diabetes at 38 weeks, but for your whole pregnancy, you can demonstrate that your blood sugar levels have remained within the normal range, then you don't have clinically manifested gestational diabetes. You've got controlled diabetes and you've got a well, healthy pregnancy and a baby that's not at risk of getting too big. So there's a very small boom. number. There's a very I feel small like that number. needs a boom. And so I think if you're diagnosed as gestational diabetic and therefore you're being put on a path for a 38-week induction because they're worried that your baby's going to get big, but your blood sugars have been stable, I'd be really confident in sort of saying, well, actually, no, my blood sugar has been stable the whole time. I've mitigated the potential risk of a big baby that comes with uncontrolled diabetes. And so I'm just going to happily decline that 38-week induction. And we will do an episode on gestational diabetes. It is coming up where we can actually cover that in full. Totally. Yeah. But that, yeah, that's my little rant to start with. All right. So the next reason why your baby, the abnormal reason for why your baby might be big, and this is for women who've got poor eating habits and have gained a lot of weight in pregnancy. They will typically also grow bigger babies because if you're eating a lot of junk food and gaining weight as a result, bees making a funny face. I'm just saying for women who eat, are eating poorly, high sugar diets, high carb diets, and not looking after themselves in pregnancy, and as a result are gaining excessive amounts of weight, this is evidence-based and I don't, I'm not going to fat shame. That's not what I'm here for. But I'm just saying if you've, if that's been your pattern is to not nourish yourself well and have a high sugar diet. Bee's like slowly leaving the screen. She's like, I do oh, not. Oh, because it's just such a big topic. And as a woman that lived on like six cheeseburgers a day and froke because I vomited most of my pregnancy, yeah. it's something that brings with it like 
when you're eating like that and you're pregnant, it doesn't feel good anyway. And so then when you hear things like that, it doesn't feel good. But should it's we just- not share facts because it doesn't feel good? Like, can we acknowledge that there are some times that women need to make decisions for their health to reduce their risk factors? Women who are gestational diabetic just do it. I'm not in the car with these people, so I can't. I just I want to be there when people are listening. I I just want to I just want to send you love if you're having big feelings about this. I just want to send you love, and I just want to say that I had I did have to ban myself from McDonald's tri- drive through on the day that I consumed six cheeseburgers. I said, B, you can't do this anymore. It it is hard, especially if you are vomiting and feeling sick all the time, or things are really hard. Like you've got three other kids, and making food for yourself is tricky. I just, I know, I know, I know. And B is always a sensitive one around this, and I'm just like, I just go for the jugular on all of these hard topics. I'm like, here's the facts, and look, the the research is is that women who gain a lot of weight. And I'm talking like, you know, 30 or 40 kilos in their pregnancy typically will grow a larger baby as well. You know, some, there is weight gain that we, that occurs to us in pregnancy that we have absolutely no control over. So I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about just because you gain weight because you're pregnant where you. You're talking about unhealthy habits, which is very well known that if you eat poorly, you have a higher risk of becoming overweight. But I just want to send love listening. Send me a message and we can do a deep rest over this episode. Mel's gone ahead and traumatised all the women who've, you know. No, no, because if you're triggered by something, that's your own story. So you don't, people don't make anybody else feel anything. Your feelings are your own and they're connected to your story. And I just want to acknowledge that there are, there, our bodies often hold, as do our hearts, a lot of story around body image. So give us the facts and I've given everyone a cuddle. Yes, thanks for cuddling everyone, B. after I'm like, right, guys. Um, so, but, you know, that's what the research shows. The women, you know, it's you can grow an abnormally large baby because that because it's also gained an abnormal amount of weight in line with what's happened to you through your pregnancy. Um, and then obviously the really kind of obvious one is that pregnancies that go beyond 42 weeks that are post-term, so the longer you are pregnant, the bigger your baby's going to be. So... It's not necessarily an abnormal thing to go to 40 week, 42 weeks, but past 42 weeks is considered abnormal. So if you're past 42 weeks, that's an abnormal reason for why you have a big baby and consider that, you know, that puts it into a risk, a risk category. So those are the three abnormal reasons. All right. So why do we worry about big babies? Why is everyone actually obsessed with trying to work out the size of your baby? And then if it's big, wanting to get it out? Because that's that's the reality is that if you're diagnosed with a baby that's over four kilos at term or, you know, for its gestation, then the your care provider may recommend an induction to get the baby out early or even more severe is they might tell you your baby's so big that they don't believe it's going to come out and they might want to take you just for an immediate cesarean and not even offer the option of an induction. So that's why it's important to start working out, is my baby big? But we already heard in the previous episode that we can't accurately diagnose the size of baby until it's born because fundal height measurement and ultrasound measurement aren't accurate enough to give you enough clinical information to make a decision 
on what to do because they're not, it doesn't give you good enough information. So we'll talk about the first thing and that is shoulder dystocia. So they'll say the bigger your baby is, the more risk it is at of shoulder dystocia. And I've looked at so many shoulder dystocia papers to try and actually disprove this statement that's given to women of like the bigger your baby gets, the more chance you have a shoulder dystocia, you know, and I'm like, no way, women's pelvises can do it. Babies can come out. doesn't matter their size. And unfortunately, I'm here to tell you that bigger babies do have a significantly increased risk of having shoulder dystocia, the bigger they get past four kilos. So if you have a baby between 2.5 and four kilos, and here's where I think the classification changed B from 4.5 kilos as a big baby to four kilos, 0.6% to 1.4% of babies between 2.5 and four kilos will experience a shoulder dystocia. So pretty rare. For babies who are over four kilos, the stat goes up to 5 to 9% of babies over 4 kilos will experience a shoulder dystocia and it's exponential. So the bigger the baby gets, the more likely it is to happen. Yeah. And now we look at why. We'll see. So B's got a theory. I mean, I feel like because this is some Cochrane reviews, this is compiled data, this is like, it's pretty damning research. If you like, I feel like we can't. Yeah, but they're not. Did the Cochrane review break it down into physiological birth, spontaneous, and there is a difference between physiological birth and vaginal birth. Did they break it down into induction versus non or spontaneous labor? Did they break it down? in terms of what that care was like and like did they were they told that their baby was going to be big and that they were going to have a shoulder dystocia and what was happening emotionally around that birth and then tell me about what was happening to the pelvis at the time of birth was that person on their back did they have an epidural were their legs up in stirrups right because all of this stuff impacts the pelvic inlet which is where the shoulders have to get into and the outlet which is where the baby has to get out of and all of that stuff matters it's not just the size so my argument is that birth is not about weight it's about dimensions and we seem to have lost that knowledge or even we we just don't think about that right it's not a weight game it's a dimensions game and the baby has all these incredible parts of it to become smaller so the bones aren't fused together they are able to slide over each other so that the head gets smaller and then what the baby does is it has an incredible ability to flex Now, all of those things, there were the babies and then we call what's called the mechanisms of labor. So the head has to come out a certain way out of the pelvis and then the baby rotates in order to get its shoulders out. Now, we know things like induction and instrumental birth increase shoulder dystocia and, you know, there's... And that's where I know, see, this is what I'm saying. I tried so hard to you to you know yeah, but I want to see the cocker review and I want to see it broken down All right. because well, they did break it down. I, they if did. we broke it down into physiological birth mm-hmm. 
All right. Go okay. break it down. But I really don't believe, I think so much of what causes shoulder dystocia is our culture and our and and how people enter birth with all the fear and then what happens during the birth in terms of induction epidurals and it's positions true. i mean i agree with you there's massive risk factors for shoulder dystocia and to like, say that it increases because of a birth weight you're not looking at all no. the factors well, right they're not the looking conference. they're looking at weight they're looking at one thing I know, but they also looked at other things. Let me tell. Let me it's tell like you. I needed like two weeks worth of warning. I know. Before we did this podcast about this information, because I'm why still think, and I'm yeah. very upset. Well, why do you think it took me so many weeks? I kept pushing this episode off because I kept looking for research. I'm like, please tell me it isn't so. So what the Cochrane Review did, and this is a 2023 paper, so it's probably the most up to date one we've got. And it's called um, induction of labour at or near term for su- suspected macrosomia. Now, it it showed that if you induced women who had suspected macrosomia, suspected large babies, their babies are approximately two hundred grams lighter, which no, which is no brainer because they're bringing them out early. The rates of shoulder dystocia were less in the induction group than they were in the group that was just observed. And so I don't know what events were around the physiological birth of bigger, suspected bigger babies, because these were not all definitely bigger. But what they did see was a reduction in shoulder dystocia with early induction for babies who were suspected of being big. But they did not recommend routine induction for babies who are suspected as macrosomic, even though they found those stats, even though, yes, inducing women early who suspectedly have large babies does reduce shoulder dystocia, it increases the risk for a whole lot of other stuff, right? So the argument is, is we can't accurately diagnose macrosomic babies and so therefore we shouldn't be routinely inducing them However, if you do choose an induction, statistically you are at reduced risk of shoulder dystocia, but you increase your risk of other things like PPH and prematurity and an unnecessary in- induction and all these kinds of things. So while what, were the, what was the actual list that Cochrane gave of all the other things okay. that it increased the risk of? I want the whole list. Oh, no, Cochrane didn't well, give a massive list. What they basically um, said was is that this don't use this as a reason to just induce women because this is still controversial. We still don't have good enough. We still don't have good enough information to accurately diagnose size in order to confidently use induction as a strategy to for indu- for like macros- a strategy for macrosomic babies because we're not good enough at diagnosing macrosomic babies yet to be confidently inducing them. So. It was it was a double edged. It sort of just tells people you're at a bit more risk. You know, shoulder dystocia. We're good at managing shoulder dystocia. We're good at also creating shoulder dystocias by, like you said, putting women on the bed um, and doing maneuvers, even vacuum extraction and forceps puts babies at increased risk of all these things. So there are things that will increase your risk of shoulder dystocia. I guess what I'm trying to say is that a bigger baby does have an increased risk of shoulder dystocia and if you induce that bigger baby earlier 
that reduces its risk because it reduces its size. What I would think was happening, which is what I'm hearing in practice, is that lots of people are now just routinely giving birth in McRoberts' position. So if you want to understand the pelvis here, I'm going to break it down for a second. When you take your knees out and close to your body, like you were doing a laying down squat, right? Like imagine that. So your knees kind of come up towards your nipples. That's what we call McRoberts, named after a man, which most of maternity care is. Um, What that does is it opens the pelvic inlet. So shoulder dystocia, for those that don't know, is a bone issue. It's where the baby's shoulder gets caught on your pubic bone. And so the baby is um, stuck until that shoulder is no longer caught on that bone. And so the way we manage it is typically with our hands. We try externally first, but we also manage it by trying to increase the pelvic inlet where the baby's going through, which is right there at the pubic bone. So the first step that we do is McRoberts. And when I teach this as a maternity course, and I don't know if the data is updated from the last time I taught it, but we say um, 40 to 50% of shoulder dystocia is resolved with McRoberts. And then we can stick our hand on your tummy and push down to try and get that shoulder to come in closer with um, into the baby's chest so that the dimension is smaller and then it fits through. Um, and that is around 50 to 60%. It resolves shoulder dystocia. For those that it doesn't resolve, we then go into the vagina and we try maneuvers to get the other baby's arm out so that the baby can drop down into the pelvis and come out. The other thing that we do is we flip people onto all fours to open and create space. So what I'm hearing is happening a lot is especially when someone has an epidural um, or they're expecting a shoulder dystocia, people have been encouraged or forced, whatever's going on, to birth in that position. And I would love to see the evidence that showed that induction decreased shoulder dystocia and what they did. Like I really want to break that down and see are we comparing apples to apples? Are we comparing one type of birth to another or were the practices very different? We would definitely need an entire episode to talk about shoulder dystocia. But I, what I guess the point of this discussion has been is that the reason why everyone's panicking about big babies is that they're frightened that your baby's going to have a shoulder dystocia and so they want to avoid it by bringing your baby out before it gets too big, but they can't even really diagnose how big your baby is and that's where the issue lies is that, okay, maybe if we could accurately diagnose larger babies, maybe an induction could save a a large percentage of babies from getting stuck. But obviously we're taking... We're reducing that risk, but we're adding a whole lot of others. And that's the issue. I think that's what Cochrane is saying is how do we justify reducing the risk of shoulder dystocia by using induction when we know that induction carries a whole other collection of risks? So you're just moving the risk to another spot. You know, you're you're then increasing the risk of a PPH or you're increasing the risk of the use of an epidural or the use of instrumental births and all these things when you induce someone. So although maybe the induction meant they didn't have a shoulder dystocia, but then we also actually created a whole lot of other issues and introduced a whole lot of other risk. And so I think when we're sort of talking about if you've got a bigger, a suspected bigger baby on board and we know that 
definitely bigger babies have got a higher risk of shoulder dystocia, the woman then gets to decide which risk she's willing to accept. So what we also know is that if you've had a shoulder dystocia at a previous birth, you are at an increased risk of having a shoulder dystocia at another birth. And so some women who maybe have experienced a catastrophic and very traumatic shoulder dystocia might say, well, I like that information. That information means that if I have a suspected large baby, I would want to choose an induction knowing that it will reduce my risk of shoulder dystocia and I accept the possibility that I could, that other risks could eventuate, but I'm more frightened of the risk of shoulder dystocia. So although we don't like the findings because it's in favour of an induction, it's just information. I'm not telling women what they should do. All I'm saying is this is what we've but the got. findings aren't. The findings aren't in favour of an induction because the conclusion was that we shouldn't be inducing. Correct. We shouldn't be inducing. But if a woman wants to choose that, at least we have some information about, you know, what the options are. So that's what I was going to say about that. And this Cochrane paper will be in the resources so everyone can have a read of it. And, like, currently the pregnancy antenatal guidelines state that we should be identifying and managing small babies because of the um, concern of IUGR, which we defined and talked about last episode. But there is absolutely nothing in the pregnancy and antenatal guidelines that state we should be identifying, let alone managing, quotation mark, big baby, correct, quotation mark, because, and, and that means identifying, mean, meaning we shouldn't be looking but what is happening is there is a lot of looking. Mm. There is a the lot of looking. We shouldn't be looking. So the research says we shouldn't be looking at low-risk women for growth scans. But, for example, if you have a client who's got undiagnosed, uh, uncontrolled diabetes or one of the other risk factors and you're looking and their fundal height is suddenly five centimetres higher than their gestation or you're feeling the baby under your hands and you're thinking, whoa, this is a big baby, are we currently experiencing a big baby for abnormal reasons? In which case, intervention might actually improve the outcomes. But what we're seeing, just- yeah, what we're seeing is that application of screening across the board for low-risk women and then using that to diagnose macrosomia and then using macrosomia as an excuse to do early inductions. That's where the problem is, is we're pathologizing normally large babies. And then the next reason why people get all panicky around big babies is there's this other thing called um, cephalopelvic disproportion. So CPD, bees rolling our eyes because, yep, we all roll our eyes and we go, oh, my gosh. So CPD, cephalopelvic disproportion, is when, you know, and we've all heard someone be told this, well, women are being told that your baby's so big that it won't fit out your pelvis and therefore we're not even going to attempt an induction. We're just going to give you a cesarean section. So this is the worst of it really because it take, it's a complete disbelief that the baby's even going to fit through the woman's pelvis. And so women get worried. They're like, oh, my gosh, the doctor said or someone said, I'm not going to say the doctor, but someone said, uh, this baby couldn't fit and therefore I needed a cesarean section. Okay, we cannot in any way 
measure the pelvic inlet of a woman to determine if the size of that baby's head is going to be able to get out through the woman's inlet. There's no way of determining that while you're pregnant. The only way out through the outlet, through the outlet, sorry, inlet, outlet, you know, the whole, the pelvic. Both of them. Well, it's got to go through both. And I do, I said, I'm not seeing this, but what I am seeing a lot is CPD. So um, the term is not being used, but I'm seeing a lot of people are having cesareans or inductions because their baby's head is big. Again, you can't measure it. A, because like the pelvis has five joints. It's continuously changing. It's It has the ability to open and expand in ways that haven't been tested yet if you haven't birthed yet. It also responds to the environment, a.k.a what position you're put in and how your body's feeling. And this is a big one, right? Our body contracts and things get smaller and bigger based on how we're feeling. And when women have that knowledge of what their pelvis can do, and I recommend it, I did a webinar on this, actually, you can, it's on my website, it's like 20 bucks. And I talk through preparing the pelvic bowl um, for birth and pushing. And I break all this down and I teach you how to do, you know, some kind of mapping within your own pelvis. Cause when you have that knowledge of how the vagina expands and the pelvis can change and how big our pelvises actually are, it brings with it so much confidence, but it also moves and changes. And there is nothing that measures that properly. No. And I mean, you were saying, you know, like you said, you're hearing that people are having cesareans and inductions for big heads. That's like another way of saying we don't think that head's going to fit through your pelvis. So it's another way of kind of spruiking the message of cephalopelvic disproportion. Women's bodies are incapable of birthing. That's what the message is. Yeah. And, I mean, and if this is something that you're worried about, like, oh, maybe the head's not going to fit through. So guess what happens? If you're in in the very rare situation where your baby's head is too big for your pelvis the only thing that's going to happen is it's not going to come out in labor and the you're going to labor and it won't progress normally and it'll be slow and it might be extra painful because your body's working super hard to try and get the baby out Um, the baby might get into a level of distress or you just won't continue to progress and in hindsight or during labor you can actually diagnose the possibility that you're experiencing cephalopelvic disproportion and if that's genuinely what is happening then thank goodness for cesarean sections because your baby wasn't going to come out super rare I've really only convinced that I've seen it twice in 14 years as a private midwife and I reckon I've seen it about the same amount of times twice I think but the amount of people that get told that it is huge I you know so many people get told oh my baby was just too big and it didn't fit and it was never going to come out so with true cephalopelvic disproportion the baby won't come out because it truly is too big to fit through your pelvis there's a few reasons for why that might be you might have had a pelvic injury you might have a pelvic deformity you might have um, issues with the pelvic shape because of malnutrition and this can be reasons of you know in in less developed countries so there are reasons for why a baby might not be able to get through the pelvis and it might not be the size of the baby it might be the shape or makeup of the woman's pelvis 
it can also be the uterus too. So we sometimes see this, the baby doesn't descend into the pelvis at all. And it's actually what's going on in the uterus. So uteruses that are heart shaped or that hold the baby in positions that are, that the baby's unable to rotate and move through the pelvis prop, yeah. properly or as it needs to. And so labor doesn't progress. Yeah. And so if that's the case, we've got the beautiful intervention of cesarean section that is really readily accessible and it's it's not a profoundly dangerous situation in a western environment because we're so heavily monitor labor and birth that we can pretty quickly pick up if you're experiencing CPD the baby shows clear signs there's clear signs in the labor and we sort of go oh probably that baby's not going to come out uh, and then they reach a level of distress where they sort of go, well, we got to get the baby out now. And so you can, in hindsight, sort of go, we think that maybe this was careful of pelvic disproportion and that's why your baby didn't come down. That's why your baby sat high and didn't descend into the pelvis. So, but we can't, there's no way of determining if the baby's head is not going to fit through your pelvis before you actually try. And so there's no harm if somebody says your baby's too big to get through your pelvis. There's no harm in saying, well, that might be so, but I'd like to try. And if it doesn't work, then I will accept a cesarean section. But a cold cesarean section, just because your care provider thinks that your baby's too big to fit through your pelvis, is a poor clinical practice on the part of the clinician to suggest and- that as is induction at the moment because it's not induction for these reasons is not evidence-based or recommended by the evidence. And a lot of people, you know, and I think you and Sarah Buckley would have talked about this. I wasn't there for that episode, but the hormones and um, all that surrounds a baby choosing its its own birthday, so going into labour spontaneously, is really important for the body and the baby. Yeah. So I think take-home messages around big babies or suspected big babies is that firstly, we as clinicians, even in Western countries, don't have effective tools to accurately measure the size of your baby. We can measure it within 10% of its potential size, only 70% of the time. So two-thirds of the time, we can tell you where roughly your baby sits on the scale of big baby to small baby. But for example, like I said in the in the last episode, if you've been told your baby's four kilos, there's a 10% plus or minus difference in that. So your baby could be 4.4 kilos or it could be 3.6 kilos. And that's if you're in the 70% of women who have been accurately diagnosed or that the baby's size has been accurately reported on. There's 30% of ultrasounds that will inaccurate, uh, inaccurately provide Uh, report on the size of your baby and so there's more than a 10% discrepancy so we know that we can't properly determine the size of a baby Uh, we also know that the research does not and the guidelines don't favor inducing women early because we suspect their baby's big not any of the Australian guidelines the NICE guidelines also don't recommend it in the UK Uh, The Cochrane Database of Systematic Reviews, although they found some benefit to inducing women early in terms of shoulder dystocia outcomes, still did not recommend routine induction for babies who are suspected of being large because we don't actually have the diagnostic tools to confirm that babies are macrosomic. 
And so look at that too. The increase was was statistically significant, but it was five to nine percent. Is that right? Five to nine percent of babies over four kilos will experience a shoulder dystocia. So that's 95, 91 to 95% of babies won't. Correct. There's a difference between shoulder dystocia and a poor outcome. So so although we're talking about increased risk of shoulder dystocia, most can be very easily resolved without injury to the baby. And so although we're to the person birthing as well. So yeah, but so often in care, it said, do you want your baby to die or your baby's going to die? And the D word gets thrown around when that's not actually the case. What we're talking about is a five to nine percent increased risk of it happening. So 91 to 95 percent risk of it not happening or chance of it not happening. And then we will cover what would happen if that risk actually occurred in other episodes. Because the other thing I was going to say is the amount of babies that are actually born big. How many? Have you looked at those stats? No. How many babies are actually born big that we suspect were big? I've just got, I remember when I did it. So I looked at 4.5 kilo babies. But, oh, in one study, the rate of cesarean birth, so I did look at that, Yeah, was greater. So 34.8% compared with 13.3%. If it was a suspected macrosomic baby. Baby. Uh And only 1.3% of babies born between 37 and 41 weeks are actually big. So that was defined as 4.5. But we can look at the stats now of the Mothers and Babies Report, meaning statistically babies over 4.5% Kilos are not as common as care providers suspect. Uh, and ultrasound measurements have limited ability to predict shoulder dystocia and lack, lack clinical usefulness. So that was the Newman study from 2022. Yes. Yeah, and that's what the Cochrane worked out too, is that they lack usefulness in actually uh, determining big babies but also outcomes. So Chang in 2015 Research shows that simply being suspected of having a big baby causes more interventions than the actual size of the baby. Mm -hmm. If we look at the latest mother and babies report, so we're looking at 2020 data that was published in 2022, mothers and babies, so Australian government still determines high birth weight as greater than 4.5 grams. Um, and so it really fluctuates and, you know, research will probably, some research will use four and some will use 4.5. So it says nine in 10 babies were born with a normal birth weight being between 2.5 and 4.499 grams. Around 1% of babies are high birth weight being 4.5 kilos or above. I just said grams then. I meant kilos. You know, all know what I mean. So around 1% of babies, that's 4.5. So it doesn't break it down to above 4 kilos because it considers that as still normal birth weight. Um, And so I think that's a really important thing to highlight here that we're looking at, if we look at 4 kilos, maybe we're looking at a bit higher. Like, So did you say that 9 out of 10 babies are born? Normal birth weight. Between 2.5 and 4.499 kilos. And so 10% are born below 2.5 and above 4.5 because 9 in 10 would mean that there's 10%. No, it's no, because it says so 92% 
Yeah. So it says nine in 10 in brackets, 92% were born with a normal birth weight. Around 1% are born higher. So 7% are born less than 2.5 kilos. And a lot of that would be uh, preterm babies. Preterm, yes. That's so, right. yeah, low birth weight, so babies born less than 2.5, was 7.1%. Yeah. Yeah. So in actual so, fact, the so in actual fact, around 1% of babies will be born over 4.5 kilos. And then only uh, 5% to 9% of, that. of those babies will actually go on to have a shoulder dystocia. And then an even smaller number of those will actually have a complication from that shoulder dystocia. And I think this is the most important thing that we need to highlight because I feel like everyone at the moment is being made to believe their babies are big from like the 12-week ultrasound when really how many babies are actually born that are classified as having a high birth weight? And what are we doing in the process of suspecting that baby to be big and weighing that baby is a lot of increased fear and unnecessary interventions and trauma that can result from that. So this study is a bit old now, but in 2009, Blackwell um, published a study that showed that in, um, the rate of cesarean section for babies that were just suspected of being big was 34.8% compared with 13.3% for babies that were thought to be within a normal weight range. That is a huge increase. And I know it's only one study, um, but it's really thinking about this. What are we doing given that 99% of babies aren't actually going to be born with this high birth weight? Like how many is how many people are actually being told that their babies are big? And then of that, what is happening and what sizes are their babies? Because how many people have been told their babies are big compared to how many babies are being born big? And then just, yeah, so 1%, 1% and of that, 5.9% have an increased risk of shoulder dystocia. Well, there is a risk of, what was it? There was a... So 5.9% of babies that are over four kilos will experience a shoulder dystocia. Yeah, so it's an absolute risk. Yeah, there's not an increased risk. I wanted to make sure I got my wording right there. Um, and then there was another study that we haven't talked about yet that I would like to just mention briefly, and that was Cheng et al.'s study in 2015. And basically their research showed that, and this was their conclusion that's taken from them, that simply being suspected of having a big baby causes more interventions than the actual size of the baby. Yes, and, and that is the issue. That's I think that's the crux of why we're doing this episode is that the amount of intervention that women are exposed to because we think their babies are big is disproportionate to the risk that is posed to them because we don't have very good technology to determine big babies and so we're acting as if we do and doing all these things to women and then only 1% of women have babies that are over 4.5 kilos but we've given all this intervention through fear because we've been using poor screening techniques that don't actually work accurately. Yeah, so currently, as of 2023, there is no evidence to suggest the benefit of identifying, let alone acting on a suspected 
big baby. And the only way to know the weight of your baby is to birth it and then weigh it. So Mel and I just want to give some tips around what you can do in this situation. So you've probably come to this episode. Some of you will be care providers, but other people will be coming to this episode because they've probably already been suspected of having a big baby. So we just, as we do in every episode, want to highlight that it is your choice whether you have the ultrasounds. It's your choice whether you have the inductions. It's your choice on if you want this to be managed or not. And saying no, we just want to acknowledge can be hard, but we've done lots of discussion in our other podcasts around this. And it really is about tuning into you, taking that space and making a decision that's right for you. So you don't have to say yes or no at an appointment. And especially when you don't have continuity of care, that can feel really tricky, but you um, to to not give an answer and it can be, you know, really conveyed that you have to give an answer, yes or no, you have to book in an induction in now. You can book that induction and then walk away and go, actually, that's not right for me and call up and say, I'm not coming to this induction. Um, it's always your choice. So often we just do things because it all of a sudden unfolds and we walk away going, how did that just happen? I just, you know, had an induction booked and I didn't want that. So going back to two episodes ago where we talked about partners, but we gave the BRAINS acronym, something that's really important to discuss with your care providers is going through the brain. So what are the benefits of this? What are the risks of this? What are the alternatives? What's my instinct saying? What happens if I do nothing? What needs to be done now? And then can I have some space? Can I have some time? The other thing that's really important is asking your care providers for the research that they're quoting. So if they're telling you that all the all babies that are born big will have shoulder dystocia, ask them, can I please have the research that you're talking about? And if they can't provide it with you then and there, say, can you please email it to me? Or can you have it for my next appointment? Um, the other thing is, if it's not feeling right and lots of red flags are going up with your current care provider, it is never too late to change care providers. So you can always say no. You can always change a care provider. Mel, is there anything else you want to add to that? I just kind of wanted to give people, we've given them the evidence, but also now what, right? Like now what can they do? Because they walk away from this and often the evidence we're giving them is very different to the evidence that they're getting from their care provider, which is why they're being drawn to these episodes. They're either getting nothing or they're getting the complete opposite. And so now they're in this whole debacle of, well, what do I do now? How do I manage it? Yeah. Well, I think that we've got to remember that the thing that somebody that your care provider might be scared of doesn't necessarily have to be the thing that you're scared of. So even though they might want to induce you because they're frightened of shoulder dystocia, you might be more frightened of induction than you are of shoulder dystocia. And so that means that your choice will be different. You might choose to accept the risk that maybe your baby's big and that maybe your baby might be at risk of shoulder dystocia, but maybe a shoulder dystocia is not worse in your mind than an induction or a cesarean section. And so I think it's about, you know, risk is always about, it's a perception, it's not fact. So it's all about what you perceive is the most risky thing. So I think risk is not absolute, it's a perception. And the other thing I want to say about that in response to like, what can you do if you've been told that your baby's big? Um, firstly, I think women should feel confident to ask, like, what are, what's your hospital routine around growth scans in the third trimester? 
Are they routinely done? And why are you giving me one if I'm at low risk of a big or very small baby? And so if they don't have a very good reason for why they're intervening or monitoring your pregnancy, then consider maybe tapping out of this whole issue by not accepting the growth scan that we know is inaccurate. It's not just the growth scans though, and this is where I'm seeing a lot of issues. People will go in for like a 32-week ultrasound to see where their placenta is and they report on the growth. And so really, if you, you really have to be aware of what can be done. Every time you say yes to an intervention and an ultrasound is that, a blood test is that, you really have to know what they're doing to you, right? You have to ask the questions. What are you doing? What are you measuring for? What other things will you report on along with what you are looking for. Because if they're just looking for the placenta, they should just be looking for the placenta. They shouldn't be doing a growth scan at the same time. And this is the issue that's happening now. And ultrasounds are reporting on all sorts of things that we never even looked at and we weren't asking for on the referral form. But, oh, we just have to do it. I've had a lot of people say, oh, the sonographer told me they just have to do it. Well, if you're not giving your consent for that to be measured in your baby, a no is always a no. Yeah, and that's Always. happened to me before where I've um, I've had clients who have only wanted an ultrasound to find out one thing and we've very specifically written on the referral, only determine placental position, do not measure or check uh, the baby and that was a specific request of the women and you can do that. And so I think checking uh, what your the, the hospital policies are wherever you're going to give birth or, or what your care provider's doing. Yeah, like right. if you're having an ultrasound at every appointment because you like to see your baby, what is your care provider actually doing? And you can say, hey, what are you looking for when you do that? Can you tell me all the things that you may report on every time you put an ultrasound onto, um, onto me? Yeah. And so, and then also discovering what the policy is, is, uh, so let's say you do want to have that third trimester ultrasound and they report the size of your baby. What's the policy on that? Would you be inducing and all that kind of stuff? So understanding what your hospital would or care provider would normally do in those situations and assessing your own level of risk. So if you go, well, I'm not at risk of a very large or a very small baby, therefore I should not even be having this third trimester uh, scan to check specifically for size. So, yeah, I think that would be my take-home point is that you could completely tap out of the small for gestational age and large for gestational age discussion by declining a routine growth scan in your third trimester. So, yeah, please know, again, you can say no to everything, but if you've come to this because you've already been suspected, then, again, you can say no. Look at the evidence. 1% of babies are born big. How many people are actually being told that their babies are big? And then what is the risk from that? And then looking at the accuracy of the ultrasound. Yeah. All right. Yeah. It's a big one. Lots of lots of love. If you've experienced any of that, we are going to cover shoulder dystocia uh, in the next episode. We have to. That has to come after this shortly. Yeah, it does have to come after this. So we'll. that's where we're going to focus our energies is doing really diving into the stats. And also the the management of shoulder dystocia. So I really mm-hmm. want to break down the fear around shoulder dystocia because mm-hmm. it is such a usually fixable and preventable thing. Mm-hmm. So if we could dive into that and particularly kind of the real, like there's a lot of midwifery knowledge around shoulder dystocia and management that sits way outside what we're actually taught in mainstream 
system. So that'd be cool to, to look into as well. Yeah, join us for that episode and uh, thanks for listening. Whew, it was a big episode and we certainly haven't finished talking about big babies or shoulder dystocia. We definitely want to bring you a full episode on shoulder dystocia because it's such a nuanced discussion. So, but what you what I feel that you can take away from this is that we're yet to start recommending routine inductions for large babies because we can't accurately diagnose large babies. So if a care provider is recommending induction and you have no existing risk factors for having an abnormally large baby, for example, if you've got uncontrolled diabetes or one of the other risk factors that we spoke about earlier, then the research is on the side of not changing anything in your care and not actually encouraging cesarean section or induction of labor for suspected large or macrosomic babies. We hope this has helped you guys who have been asking for episodes on big babies and we'll see you in the next episode of the Great Birth Rebellion. If you want any of the information, uh, research papers that we spoke about in this episode, then you can get on the mailing list for this podcast. Once you get on the mailing list, you'll be sent a link to the resource folders for this podcast and that includes folders for every single episode and all the research papers that we use as we research these podcast episodes and we collate the information to bring it to you. So if you want more information, please join the mailing list and that'll be sent out to you. The other place that you can get more information and where you actually have the opportunity to ask some questions about each episode because what happens is, is we release an episode and then we get inundated with questions on our social media and through email asking for more detailed information about people's specific circumstance. Professionally, we cannot answer these questions. We're not your midwives. We don't know your personal circumstance. So we really can't be answering those questions. But there is a platform that's coming soon for you to sign up to. It's called the Assembly of Rebellious Midwives. And in there, we can answer more detailed questions, not necessarily specific clinical questions, but we can go deeper in the podcast episodes and we can specifically look at research papers for you to get a deeper understanding of particular topics. So if you want to join the Assembly of Rebellious Midwives, please go to www.melaniethemidwife.com and you can sign up to register your interest there to get all the information about the Assembly of Rebellious Midwives. It's coming soon and it's the place to dive even deeper and get even more information and ask more questions and get specific answers to your questions about each podcast episode. And this assembly is designed for midwives, students, birth workers, women who want to know more to get continuing professional development hours and to go deeper on each particular topic that we discuss in the podcast. So if that sounds like something you'd be interested in, we'd love to have you in the assembly. Until until then, we will see you in the next episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. Thanks for listening with us today. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favourite podcast platform and join our mailing list at melaniethemidwife.com. Mel sends out weekly emails with access to all the evidence we use in this podcast. You can find out more about Mel at melaniethemidwife.com and find out more about me, B, at coreandfloor.com.au. 
We can't wait to bring you next week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. Yeah! Yeah! (laughs) All right.